Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One hundred and nine years after its last shots had been fired, the historian David Paul Crook opened his account of the American Civil War with the following sentence. Although more words have been written upon the American Civil War than most historical subjects, that upheaval has never been accorded its just place in the international history of our times. Crook attempted to rectify this in 1974 by presenting a study which accorded the Civil War its proper international context. His book, The North, The South and The Powers, was the end result. Crook concluded that it would be a mistake to assume that the United States did not feature in the considerations of other European powers. While not recognised as a great power, it was accepted by most that the United States was in possession of remarkable potential in population if nothing else, and that if given sufficient time, it could emerge as the dominant power within not merely America, but the world. The eruption of the Civil War, then, appeared to shatter these expectations. It was not greeted as wholly unwelcome news, though. To some powers, this development of civil war was a net positive. It meant in the British case that America's burgeoning naval presence would never emerge as a proper threat. It meant that British manufacturers and producers would not have to reckon with another industrial rival. It also meant that Britain would have a free hand in North America and wouldn't have to concern itself with the defence of Canada, an incredibly demanding task. And nor were the British the only concerned power. Napoleon III's France faced its own challenges upon the end of the Crimean War in 1856. Although that war with Russia alongside its British ally had been technically successful, the Allies had bogged down in their siege of Sevastopol and little real glory could be wrested from it. So the Emperor turned to another formidable foe of his conquering uncle, the Austrian Habsburg Empire. A Franco-Austrian war over the fate of Italy in 1859 ended with a military triumph, but the consequences of that triumph for Italian nationalism and Napoleon's reputation were more complex. The alliance with Britain was maintained, and trade links across the Channel were also improved through a free trade agreement in 1860, the first of its kind in history. Yet still, by 1861, some of the shine had worn off of Napoleon III's efforts to emulate and even supersede his uncle, Napoleon I. Many of these problems, the belief went, could be solved with a new imperialist policy, and where better to launch such a policy than in the region which had suddenly erupted in flames. 
French attention would not be paid to the United States, though. Infamously, Napoleon turned his country towards the task of forging a new European empire in Mexico, then a pariah of the international system. Mexico may have evicted its Spanish masters in the 1820s, but the 40 years that had expired since had not been smooth sailing. By the early 1860s, Mexico had defaulted on several debts to foreign powers, seriously irking Paris and many other Europeans, and provoking retaliation. In this, France was not alone. A multinational flotilla was sent to the Gulf of Mexico, consisting of French, British and Spanish vessels. This impressive show of European force is barely remembered today, and as a united European venture, it didn't last particularly long, since each of the powers involved had their own ideas about how to proceed. But still, this multinational venture was a clear sign that the Monroe Doctrine was dead. Here were European powers intervening en masse in the American theatre, something which American presidents had expressly forbid since 1823. That bluff was regarded with scorn at the time, but 40 years later, when the United States faced the most severe test to its integrity since the War of 1812, the circumstances of civil war presented an opportunity. As Napoleon III believed, it was now or never for French pretensions of American empire. If Washington's disadvantages were not taken advantage of now, then the chance to spread French influence and culture across the world, the chance to restore what had been lost, the chance to fix the glaring problems in the imperial regime, all of this would crumble to pieces. Neither the British nor the French were particularly positive about the prospects for America's success against the Confederacy. To begin with, it was not expected that the North possessed the necessary military clout to defeat the South. But then, even if this defeat was possible, the subjugation of the South and the repression of its identity and desire to be free were viewed as completely impossible missions, bordering on fantasy. We should bear in mind Europeans had been taught harsh lessons about the failure of empires to repress its lesser nationalities. Objectionable though the South's favour for slavery was, how different was the Confederacy's quest for national self-determination to that of the Italian, the Polish or the Irish? It seemed inevitable from the perspective of the Europeans looking on, and as the list of seceding states eroded Washington's position, that soon enough two American powers would emerge on the continent. The rise of the United States would be delayed, and in its place would emerge two distinct but still conjoined powers. A tragedy, though this was for abolitionists and Anglo-French liberal proponents of the American ideals of democracy, it was also a tremendous opportunity for Europeans to make their presence felt. Yet even then, the powers proceeded carefully. During the summer of 1861, before the Confederacy achieved any notable victories that cemented its independent status, and as the North's blockade of southern ports intensified, the British and the French watched with bated breath. The furthest they would go, so far, was a declaration of neutrality, and in the British case, even a recognition of the South as an independent nation was carefully avoided. This suggests that the British and French, to a lesser extent, were not as willing to ruthlessly capitalise upon American difficulties as we might assume. A wait-and-see approach might have served the different parties best, but one thing was certain, that during the fog of war, and particularly a war with such stakes and such bitter opponents, unfortunate mistakes, breakdowns of communication, and failures in diplomacy 
or bound to occur. When this happened and Anglo-American or Franco-American relations were brought to a crisis point, history itself would hang on a knife edge. French intervention had guaranteed the success of the American Revolution in the first place. Could European interference 90 years later save the Confederacy and thus guarantee the existence of a two-power system in North America? What would be the consequences of such interference if it was carried forth? All these questions and many more swirled in the ether of international relations in the early 1860s, but before the American Civil War was even a year old, the first crisis of real magnitude emerged. In early November 1861, an American vessel, the San Jacinto, forced its British counterpart, the Trent, to a stop. It then seized the Confederate commissioners on board, who had been bound for Europe, and brought these two individuals back to internment in the United States. Was this act legal? Did belligerents have the power to seize people from neutral vessels? Was this permitted under international law, or even by past customs and traditions? Predictably enough for 19th century audiences, the question was complicated by the matter of national honour. But one thing is crystal clear. The Trent Affair, as it was known, the most serious crisis of Anglo-American relations in a generation, really did bring America and Britain to the brink of war. I know there is ferocious appetite for stories like these, and believe me when I say if you're here to trace a tense diplomatic standoff which came within a breath of deteriorating into war, you've come to the right place. This is When Diplomacy Fails, and I'm your host, Zach Twomley. Hope you're all doing well. Our show has never visited this era before, despite many urgent emails and messages insisting I should explore the American conflict. My mission today and in the near future, though, isn't to provide yet another narrative of the American Civil War. Instead, I'm here to examine a snapshot in European relations with the Americans in December 1861. Why am I doing this, you're surely wondering. Well, you should know that this story forms part of what will be a larger series called Britain Goes to War, and this series will be out sometime in the spring of 2022 for patrons. We last looked at Britain Goes to War all the way back in 2016, with a focus then on Disraeli's premiership in the 1870s. This time, though, Britain Goes to War will follow Viscount Palmerston's final administration, which spanned from 1859 to 1865. This is in line with my current research path for the History PhD, which, oh yeah, thanks for helping me to fund that, by the way. It should be said that the fallout from the Trent Affair in December 1861 is merely a snapshot of the turbulent nature of international relations at this point, but if you've never heard of this event before and you're not even all that interested in the American Civil War, then don't worry. I'll make sure we are all on the same page and and can follow along with the story of this crisis together. Those of you that have tapped into our Bismarck Rise series will know what occurs in 1864, but even without that defining moment in Bismarck's career, Europe and the world was in a strange kind of turmoil. The Britain which emerged on the other side of Palmerston's death in 1865 was very different indeed, yet Even more different was the balance of power by 1865. The Germans were energised, Napoleon III had been repelled and humiliated after Mexico, the United States was united once again, and Viscount Palmerston, the leading light of British foreign policy for nigh on 60 years, was now dead. As you can tell then, 
There's a lot to talk about in this new iteration of Britain Goes to War. So if you find yourself enjoying listening today or in the next few episodes that come out in this little snapshot series, make sure you sign up on Patreon at the $5 level and all this and more will be yours when it's available. In the meantime, though, to be honest, guys, I was thinking of the year I've just had and how much I owe to your continued support and how many times I let you down with scheduling problems or not having a microphone or that kind of thing. And I decided that the best way to thank you would be to give you a Whopper present in audio form. So that's what I'm doing here. It should take us about five episodes to get through all the detail. Current patrons will already have access to all the episodes and free from ads. And I've done something a little bit special and different as well, because I decided it would be useful for you guys who want to listen to it all as a kind of audiobook chapter or something like that, to put all five episodes together into one block, and that's in the Patreon feed as well. But how will this snapshot work? Well, hopefully following my introduction, you'll know enough of the background to jump in. We will have to skip much of the more interesting background, which is painful for me, but the whole point in these episodes is to give you a taste for what's to come. And what's to come is an examination of British relations with the United States from the moment the Civil War began, and into the mid-1860s, don't you worry. But for now, we have to restrain ourselves a bit, and also fast forward to a few months after the Civil War broke out. And for these reasons, we'll be starting our story at the very peak of the crisis in December 1861. By now, you see, news of what had occurred during the Trent Affair had reached the United States and the British, and the governments of each side were reacting. But in reality, the crisis was only beginning. The crisis also takes place during a curious technological watershed moment. Efforts to mirror the advancements in communication across Europe and install a telegraph cable across the Atlantic had stalled following several failures in the 1850s. The groundbreaking communications technology did not arrive until 1866, which then made Anglo-American diplomacy and European-American diplomacy virtually instantaneous. Thus, even as the English-speaking world seemed poised on the brink of war, the concerned parties were forced to wait on the arrival of the mail packet in 1861, which delayed communication between Europe and America for as much as 10 days, added even more anxiety to the proceedings, but certainly made for an interesting story. The public mood in each country had been roused, But to what end? Could it mean war? The third Anglo-American war in under a century? You likely know that Britain and America did not come to blows in 1861 or 1862, but that's the quick version of events. And it's far less interesting than getting down and dirty with these documents and sources, digging in deep and seeing what we find. Let's also ask the question, why in late 1861 did diplomacy succeed? when 40 years before, Anglo-American diplomacy had manifestly failed? The answer may well surprise you, but in the next few episodes we'll address this and many other questions, so if you're ready for this special series, that I don't really know how to label it or anything, but I'm just going to get into it, then let's begin. By the evening of the 27th of November, 1861, the British public were made aware of the Trent Affair thanks to the print media available at the time. A response was then developed during cabinet meetings of the 29th and 30th of November, during which Viscount Palmerston, the Prime Minister, 
was said to have slammed his hat down on the table and declared, I don't know whether you're going to stand this, but I'll be damned if I do. Palmerston then demanded that the Channel Fleet be sent out. These hot tempers in response to what had happened at the high seas and the American boarding of the Trent vessel and the seizing of the Southern Commissioners would cool after a few days, but the discussion of the incident truly intensified in the public sphere during the first two weeks of December. Then, anxiety for Britain's national honour combined with some degree of confusion over the customs of international law and a reluctance to support the Confederacy, which any war with the Union would do by default, combined to create a cocktail of nervous energy and commentary. There was plenty of room to agonise over Britain's options, to offer opinions on the United States' responsibility, and to speculate on what a third round of Anglo-American war would look like. Before the British could safely plot their response to the American outrage, though, it was essential they tie up their main loose end in Europe, France. An agreement had been reached in the months before to act in concert in the American theatre, but distrust of Napoleon III's regime remained remarkably high in London. Palmerston, particularly, still viewed France as Britain's foremost rival in the world, and the Anglo-French alliance, which had outlasted the Crimean War, was seen by many not as a symbol of a new era in relations between the two nations, but as a means of keeping one's enemies close and restricting French freedom of action. In October 1861, a month before the Trent crisis happened, Palmerston informed Queen Victoria that the Anglo-French alliance was precarious, and Queen Victoria, for her part, looked on France as the one danger in Europe. Given the chance, it was believed, France would usurp the old order of 1815, pulling independent states into its orbit, conquering Belgium, the Netherlands, and the German states along the Rhine. But with the fact of the Trent Affair, and with Palmerston considering the incident as a deliberate and premeditated insult, Britain's strategic dilemma was plain. To respond with the necessary force, it would be necessary to guarantee France as a friendly neutral first. In addition, it was hoped that France would see the Trent controversy from the British point of view. Perhaps surprisingly, and this is a common theme of the whole crisis, Napoleon III, along with other European nations, wholeheartedly supported the British during this crisis, contributing in the process towards Britain's eventual diplomatic victory during it, and, if some historians are to be believed, making the most important contribution within that victory. Franco-American agreements in the past, and the clear role that France had played in the American Revolution, might have lulled Washington into a false sense of security regarding France's disposition, but these illusions were quickly and painfully disabused. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The French Foreign Secretary introduced the Trent issue around the same time as the British did, on the 28th of November, to his cabinet, and he rapidly sided with London in the dispute. What was more, the French were willing to go further in their retaliation against the Americans than the British were by this point. Napoleon III was said to be particularly incensed with the North's insolence, and he intended to recognise the Confederacy as a sovereign nation if Britain would do the same. Henri Mercier, the French ambassador in Washington, was told to communicate France's displeasure at the violation of neutral shipping in no uncertain terms. News of France's determined support, when very little effort had been made to secure it by that point, was immensely gratifying to Earl Russell's foreign policy aspirations, Earl Russell being the British Foreign Secretary during this time. Not only did it grant Britain a stronger hand, it also detracted from the American position because it removed the possibility of a third round in the Anglo-French quarrel over America. It also isolated Lincoln's regime and piled more pressure on the American Secretary of State, Seward, to act according to the European stance. Yet, it should not be thought that these favourable developments meant that Britain was gearing up for war with the United States. To begin with, commercial interests, particularly those Atlantic commercial interests which had ballooned in recent decades, all pointed to economic ruin in the event of an Anglo-American war. The so-called Manchester School of British Foreign Policy, which emphasised the primacy of free trade and the expense of conflict, exercised its considerable muscle during this period. Its arguments emphasised the need for CAM, the need for America to recognise its weak position and capitulate early, and the danger which war would pose to liberal institutions on both sides of the Atlantic. Of course, tied into these grave warnings were other, sterner threats. The Morning Post, essentially Palmerston's organ and a good indication of his viewpoint, opined on the 30th of November that In one month we could sweep all the San Jacintos from the seas, blockade the northern ports, and turn to a direct and speedy issue the tide of the war now raging. For the first few weeks of the Trent crisis, though, a degree of confusion reigned over whether Britain had in fact been in the right. Granted, the United States had committed a grave sin in removing officials bound on a vessel boasting the British flag, but had Britain not committed far worse sins at sea a generation before? Legal wrangling over the matter threatened to dull the excitement over the outrage. Indeed, a great fear in the British cabinet was getting drawn into endless debates over international law, the rights of neutrals or questions of established customs during wartime. 
There was a real need to cut through these details and focus on what had actually occurred. An American official, after all, had stopped a British vessel on the high seas, boarded her and, under threat of force, captured the envoys on board, whisking them away to captivity thereafter. Was this not a gross violation of the rights of neutrals? Furthermore, as those Confederate commissioners had been travelling under the protection of the British flag, was this American act not also an affront to the Union Jack and thus to British national honour? Some Britons were under no illusions about the matters at stake. The Earl of Clarendon, a former foreign secretary, argued fiercely against any capitulation to the North on the matter. He said, I have a horror of war, and of all wars, one with the United States, because none would be so prejudicial to our interests. But peace, like other good things, may be bought too dearly, and it never can be worth the price of national honour. One potential escape for Washington was the idea that Lieutenant Wilkes, the individual responsible for boarding the Trent vessel in the first place, hadn't acted on the orders of his superiors, but had acted on his own initiative. Perhaps, the Times supposed, the seizure of the commissioners was the act of the American commander and was not expressly directed by his government. Yet even so, the Times newspaper went on to present an opinion that Washington had secretly planned the outrage for which we are now asking reparation. The only course, the Times said, was to uphold our strict rights. There could be no doubt about the situation. Britain and the United States were on the brink of war and only careful diplomacy could bring them back. One British figure was particularly determined to make his mark on the crisis. Since his marriage to Queen Victoria in February 1840, Albert, the Prince Consort, had walked a fine line in British politics. Although not all Britons were pleased with the German prince, there can be no doubt that he served as the Queen's rock, and in this case especially, he had a profound impact upon her empire's future. He intervened with the use of his most effective weapon, his pen. In the final days of November 1861, the Prince Consort drafted a letter which would not offend the Americans, and which would also exact the necessary satisfaction for Britain. Her Majesty's government are unwilling to believe, part of the letter went, that the United States government intended wantonly to put an insult upon this country, and to add to their many distressing complications by forcing a question of dispute upon us, and that we are therefore glad to believe that, upon a full consideration of the circumstances of the undoubted breach of international law committed, they would spontaneously offer such redress as alone could satisfy this country, viz the restoration of the unfortunate passengers, and a suitable apology. The best way to avoid offence, the Prince Consort seemed to believe, was to assume the best of the other party. The United States surely did not intend to commit such a grave crime, or to insult Britain's honour so deeply, and in time it would come to the same conclusion as the British already had, and hurry to offer compensation. This was a generous viewpoint, and it was far less belligerent than British Foreign Secretary Earl Russell's earlier drafted letters had been. Indeed, both Earl Russell and Viscount Palmerston thought that Prince Albert's letter was excellent, and they modelled their own official communique after it, adding in some spice as required. It read as follows. For the government of the United States must be fully aware that the British government could not allow such an affront to the national honour to pass without full reparation, 
and Her Majesty's government are unwilling to believe that it could be the deliberate intention of the government of the United States unnecessarily to force into discussion between the two governments a question of so grave a character, and with regard to which the whole British nation would be sure to entertain such unanimity of feeling. Watered down though it was in the end, the final document would have the character of an ultimatum. It should not be understated just how seriously Britain took the Trent Affair, and in the immensely sensitive national atmosphere, the idea that the government would simply accept the insult without crying foul was impossible. In his instructions to Lord Lyons, Britain's ambassador in Washington, Earl Russell noted that a period not exceeding seven days would be allowed from the moment the Americans received the ultimatum. If at the end of that time no answer is given, Russell wrote, or if any other answer is given except that of a compliance with the demands of Her Majesty's government, your lordship is instructed to leave Washington with all members of your legation, bringing with you the archives of the legation, and to repair immediately to London. The British Foreign Secretary was deadly serious, but he wasn't in the business of being needlessly provocative. There was room for some leeway in his instructions. He did ask Lord Lyons to abstain from anything like menace when presenting the ultimatum, and also to behave tactfully wherever else was possible. The government was prepared to be rather easy about the apology that the United States gave, Russell said, but Washington should not mistake this generosity for weakness. The feeling here is very quiet but very decided, Russell said. There is no party about it. All are unanimous. On the 2nd of December 1861, the ultimatum officially left Britain's shores, and there could be no going back. Although the first transatlantic cable had been laid between Ireland and Newfoundland by 1858, this had failed before the end of that year. The project had cost many hundreds of thousands of pounds, millions in today's money, and the eruption of the Civil War a few years later delayed the Anglo-American cooperation, which characterised the first successful laying of the transatlantic cable, and it enabled the Queen to wish President Buchanan a happy birthday, just so you know. So the next year of communication would have to wait. It didn't wait long. By September 1866, the new cable was finally laid, and this dramatically changed the nature of diplomacy. It eliminated tense waiting times for replies, but as such technology was not in the hands of the Anglo-Americans in 1861, they'd have no choice but to wait the required 10 days for the message to arrive. Would the message arrive in time to solve the crisis, or would events take a turn in the meantime, rendering it obsolete? It seemed only sensible, as the clock ticked down, to prepare for every eventuality. Thus, the British Secretary for War presented a draft of an earlier plan in the event that Britain did have to go to war with the United States. It should be said these plans were not of a throwaway character, they were seriously intended. Initial ideas considered the possibility of a naval landing near the state of Maine, a state on the northeastern coast and along the border with Canada. The expectation was Maine's residents would aid the British, and American dissatisfaction and gloom over its own civil war would turn the people against President Lincoln once they saw the guns arrive. Of course, no British plan was complete without extensive involvement from the Navy. This plan here was no exception. The North American squadron's commander was instructed to remain in place and not dilute his strength. 
he will be reinforced from the Caribbean, while the Brazilian and Good Hope squadrons were under orders to attack American merchant shipping as soon as the declaration of war was official. In Canada itself, the situation called for heavy investment and major innovations in defence if the impossibly enormous frontier was to be properly defended. As a precaution, the British had already sent more arms for the militia alongside another battery of artillery, two infantry battalions and a company of engineers. By the 8th of December, four battalions of infantry, three field artillery batteries and two companies of engineers waited patiently in Canada for more news. The following day on the 9th, a comprehensive plan for the defence of Canada was sent to a war committee, where Palmerston and many other top ministers were in attendance. Interestingly, Palmerston didn't seem too affected by what was going on at the time. On the 5th of December, he wrote to Queen Victoria that If the federal government comply with the demands, it will be honourable for England and humiliating for the United States. If the federal government refuse compliance, Great Britain is in a better state than at any former time to inflict a severe blow upon and read a lesson to the United States, which will not soon be forgotten. Palmerston pooh-poohed the claim of the Manchester School that commercial intercourse is the best security for peace because it creates interests which would be damaged by war. It was not money, but passion that really mattered in Palmerston's mind. Passion sways the masses, while interest acts comparatively on the few. Nor was Palmerston alone with his big talk. Britain's Secretary for War claimed that we shall soon iron the smile out of their face when referring to the potential of American complacency. When it came to the matter of Britain receiving its just desserts, perhaps no medium was as vocal as that of the newspapers. From this bank of primary sources, it becomes plain that backing down was never an option for the British. Palmerston's government was expected to get satisfaction, an American retreat and apology was expected and looked forward to, and in some cases, an Anglo-American war was even longed for to teach the Yankees a lesson. The Times, probably the most popular newspaper at the time, or at least the most well-known one, was typically stoic and firm on the issue, and having set forward the chain of events which led to the outrage, it was solemnly declared that All now remains for us is to adjure the government and people of the northern states to do us justice in this matter. They must by this time know us and our willingness to draw the sword against them, or to take part in their unhappy quarrel. Indeed, our patience and long-suffering have not improbably led to the series of insults, of which the Trent is the last and most offensive. But there was clearly some sensitivity regarding how the Trent affair was being treated in the American papers. The tone was far too jubilant and triumphant for many British papers to stomach. Where the Yankees should be showing contrition for the violation of international law and the dishonour done to the British flag... Instead, they seemed to be thumbing their noses at Britain and jeering that she lacked the stomach for an American war. This was not necessarily the case, though some of the more chauvinistic organs of the American press did take this tone. The Times thus asserted, Let them be assured that the pretensions which their government has made cannot be allowed by any state which respects its own dignity or even its own safety. Let them be assured that the forbearance of this country has not been dictated, as their ignorant politicians tell them, by any dread of their power, and that though we can disregard much petulance, 
we will not sit down under an injury. For my PhD research, I investigated the language used in extracts like these to build a better picture of how something as complex as national honour was regarded, invoked and defined in the public sphere. Whenever Britain perceived that an outrage to the national honour had occurred, talk of national honour increased and much ink was spent agonising over how this honour should be redeemed and how satisfaction should be received. Satisfaction, a very important aspect of national honour generally, could be sourced from a successful war, but in this case, the tone of the Times and other organs made it plain that a simple apology at admission of American wrongdoing and the release of the commissioners would more than suffice. The problem with this, as you can likely imagine, is that the United States had national honour of its own to consider, and nothing animated the Yankees more than the idea that they would have to concede defeat and bow to their former colonial master. Of course, this process could be made easier if Britain didn't take a triumphant tone and beat the United States when it's down. As we have seen, British Foreign Secretary Earl Russell already understood that every bridge should be provided to make America's submission as painless as possible. Now, we don't need to delve into national honour as deeply as I am doing for my PhD, but there's no getting around the fact that national honour featured heavily when discussions of the Trent Affair took place. If you like, keep an ear out for further mentions of the honour ethic as we go forward. As the narrative progresses, you're likely going to notice that the parties alluded to two issues which they could not ignore. The first was national honour, but the second was a concept in the very beginnings of its development, international law. I feel I've dropped enough on you in this first episode though guys, so when we come back in the second episode, we're going to look more at international law then, and how it was actually defined, whether the Americans had in fact broken it, the pros and cons on both sides, and what it all meant for the crisis. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you have been suitably surprised and that you're looking forward to devouring the rest of this early Christmas present, and again... I want to thank you guys so much for sticking with this show, for supporting it, and for supporting me, whether you're doing so monetarily, or emotionally, or spiritually, or what have you. It's all really appreciated. Thank you for making 2021 such a good year for this podcast. Can't wait to see what 2022 brings, but I also am confident that you'll join me there. Less confident, perhaps, than the British were of getting satisfaction, but that's a story for the next episode. So thanks so much for listening. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.